you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where today we are going to be looking together at verses 13 through 17. That is Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17, and you can find that passage there on the bottom of page 981 in your pew Bibles. Hopefully you will remember that last week we saw Mark begin to just slightly change gears a bit here in his gospel account. Though I would remind you, as I've said before, his mission will actually stay on point throughout this entire letter. He's desirous to get before you the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And though he may change his focus a bit at times, narrowing in on different aspects of his mission, he will never leave from his overall main pursuit. And so as we made the transition from chapter 1 into chapter 2, we saw that Mark moved from the authority and the very clear deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, into just some of the methodology of how the gospel itself works out practically in his people's lives. He moves from that vivid portrait of the king himself into God-given faith-building his glorious kingdom as it answers the call to faith. And I want to point out that even in these narratives, we still have very much before us the authority of the king his authority, and his deity to do what he is doing as he calls. We also saw the start of something else here in chapter 2. That is this brewing conflict that exists or is beginning at least to take shape between Jesus Christ on the one hand and the religious leaders of his day on the other, the scribes and the Pharisees. We saw both of those things last week. Last week we saw supernatural faith working in the hearts of those four friends, as the four friends of this man who was paralyzed. Faith was the driving force behind what they were doing, which was at any cost to get their friend in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would know exactly what to do with him. Faith drives us to Jesus Christ. And it's more than just knowing who Jesus is. It is that, but it's more than just that. It's also trusting Him with our very lives. Trusting that His words are true and that in them is eternal life. We saw that illustrated as these four friends would stop at nothing To get their friend to Jesus. Not even the roof of a house could stop them. Because Jesus is the author and the finisher of faith. By his grace he calls and faith comes. Faith answers that call. Faith obeys. Faith recognizes and knows the voice of its master. 
And faith is not leading these men, beloved. It's not leading us on an exercise in futility. It is doing something. It is driving us to Jesus to be sure, but there is a purpose behind its driving. It's bringing us to the only solution for what truly ails us. And bringing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, faith is bringing us to the remedy for our sin against the Most High Majesty of Almighty God. We know that we are fallen in Adam. We are guilty of his sin as well as our own. And the price must be paid for that sin. Beloved, we know that our debt is too great. It is insurmountable in and of our own sinful selves, to ever get out from under it. But Jesus is the perfect one. He is the spotless one, the righteous one, the second Adam come to undo the curse of the first. And in Him, united to Him, to His life, His death, and His resurrection by faith, faith that He so mercifully gives to us, we find the solution to life's greatest problem. He takes our sin and our shame and He covers us in the perfection of His righteousness. And in the eyes of the great judge, we are declared eternally righteous in Him and made to be the blessed children and heirs of Almighty God. He heals us of the disease that has rid us of righteousness, our sin. And so faith leads us to the solution for what truly ails us. It drives us to Jesus and it heals our wounds. And it's only by the authority of the great king of all kings, that this is so. He declares it with the authority that belongs only to God himself. The Pharisees are scandalized at the words of Jesus as he looks at this paralytic and first does what? Forgives his sin and then goes on to heal him. He first deals with the most desperate need in this man's life. And only then does he address the temporary, even worldly problem of his paralysis. We are reminded of just how easy it is to forget that the situations and the circumstances that we we currently find ourselves in are not at all our greatest problems. Though it may feel as if the walls of this life are closing in on us. Though it may feel as if your current uncomfortable circumstances are the thing that you most need God to intervene on your behalf. Your greatest problem is your sin that separates you from a holy and perfect God. And so he calls He calls you through faith to come and to be healed from what matters for eternity. Beloved, He is God. And He alone has the authority to do it. 
And of course, the beautiful takeaway from this precious truth of that narrative, of that narrative from last week and from the gospel itself, beloved, is that in his mercy, in his providence, Almighty God will move heaven and earth to bring his people home. It ought to cause our hearts to swell with affection for this God and with real and true gratitude for what he and he alone has done for sinful wretches like you and I. This morning as we look to these verses that are before us, Mark, having already given us the the what, if you will, of faith, begins now to move into the who of faith. And as he moves into what amounts to the second of five of these rising conflicts between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, he will begin to unpack for us more of the caller and the called alike. And in doing so, I think we learn something of how self-righteous attitudes and behavior point us to neither one of those things. The gospel of Jesus Christ is most certainly powerful. It changes lives. It will transform one while yet condemning another. It has the power to give life and rightly to condemn it. And as Mark puts some definition to this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, beloved, I think we need to see it in terms of two types of people that are in the church of Jesus Christ. The gratefully righteous in Jesus Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, and the self-righteous indignation of the pompously religious. What is before us this morning are two sets of Joneses, if you will, in the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you here at the outset, you are one or the other this morning. And the great question that we must ask ourselves is which one do we align most with? And what are we going to do about it? So I'd like for you to follow along with me now in your Bibles as I read From the inerrant, infallible, and holy word of God, Mark chapter 2, again, verses 13 through 17. Hear now the word of our Lord. Then Then he, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for this time together. We're grateful for your word and the 
opportunity that we have to look to your word together. I pray, Father, that you would bless these words, that I would preach your word with accuracy and with confidence. We pray, Father, that these words would ring true in our lives and in our hearts, and that hearing these words by faith through the power of your spirit, that we would be transformed by these words for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you find yourself perhaps wondering this morning about the title to my sermon, I'll give you just a brief explanation here at the outset. However, I think it becomes more and more clear as we proceed into this text. But back in the early 1990s, when I first came to faith, one of the things that I found myself attracted to at the time was contemporary Christian music. Coming from my background that was brand new to me and I was eating it up. And I was fortunate enough to have in the area that I was living at the time a decent contemporary Christian radio station. And one of the bands that I came to enjoy early on was a band that went by the name of Big Tent Revival. And back then they had a hit song that was getting a lot of airtime on the radio. And the name of that song was Two Sets of Joneses. The song told the story of two very different looking families in the church of Jesus Christ. One of them was built upon the sandy foundation of a materially comfortable life and faith as a subtext. While the other was built entirely upon the rock of Jesus Christ and the comfort of living by faith in Him alone with the rest of all of life as a subtext. And the great question put before the listener in this song was there are two sets of Joneses in the visible church of Jesus Christ. Which one are you? As we begin to move deeper into this brewing controversy that exists here between Jesus on the one hand and the religious leaders on the other, I think that Mark, in essence is asking us to consider that same question. As we dig into this conflict, beloved, I think that perhaps you will see that the gulf or the chasm that exists between these two types of people in the visible church of Jesus Christ might not be as far as it at first seems, or at least not dividing where we might think that it would. So to consider that, I want to talk to you this morning from this passage and point out just a few things here, both about the call and the called in this passage. We are told here in our text that Jesus went out again by the sea. It's become a a very common theme here in Mark in this gospel account of his. Jesus has been pressed in upon by the growing crowds. His fame is spreading, and we know his fame is spreading for many of the wrong reasons. The people are intrigued with his displays of power. And they are gathering as a mere herd or as a a simple cluster of the curious. And there's something beautiful, I think, about Jesus' response to what's going on here. He's not at all upset with them. Do you notice that? He's also not fleeing from them. 
He's not telling them to go away, that he's there for the serious ones. That there's nothing to see here. No, what he's actually doing is moving himself into an area of greater space in order to teach them the message of his kingdom. Mark tells us that they came, and what did Jesus do? Well, it says that he taught them. He taught them of their great need. He taught them the way of redemption. He showed to them the scriptures which spoke of him. It's beautiful, isn't it? He doesn't hold against them their wrong and fool-headed intentions. He opens their eyes to the glory of the gospel. He's building his kingdom, after all. Which is something that we've witnessed before here in Mark. He called his first disciples, those who are with him right now in this exact same way. You remember in Mark chapter 1, we saw the call of Simon, Andrew, James, and John in this same form, in this same manner, even in this same place. They too were on the seashore. They were fishermen. And Jesus called and faith responded by immediately and obediently heeding the voice of the Master, leaving all and following Him. And you will remember that we established that Mark wants you to see Jesus Christ the Son of God here. He wants you to see the King of Kings here. He calls, and you understand in Mark, there is no resistance to the call. There's no determining his value or even the cost of leaving everything else behind and following him. There's simply the call and the called answered. The call answered. And I don't want to spend too much of our time there this morning. Because I believe that we have already established the call and its subsequent response earlier on in chapter 1. This morning I want us to see the call itself as well as the called. First let's think for a moment about this particular call. Again, we've seen it before. Mark tells us Jesus is passing by and he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax booth and he simply looks at him and he says to him, follow me. And he drops everything he's doing and he follows. We'll talk more about the person who receives this call in just a moment. First, let's think about the call itself. This is the king of kings. This is the long-awaited Messiah walking in his creation, and he knows what he is doing. He knows all things. He's fully aware of his surroundings. He knows that he is surrounded by the fallen creation. He's aware of these followers, these crowds that are always trying to get near him for all the wrong reasons. But he has a mission to accomplish. And he will not be deterred. He's making his way as the God-man, the one perfectly fitted for our salvation, towards the cross, where he will lay down his life in exchange for ours. He will make the perfect sacrifice of himself 
in order to ransom those whom he came to save. And between here and there, he is gathering his disciples and establishing his kingdom on the earth to be carried on through the ministry of these very men. It's a picture of his kingliness, his deity, his power. I would say even his love and his mercy as he extends these calls. There's power here. We see it in the irresistible nature of this call. This is the creator calling to the creature and the creature must and certainly does respond in obedience. There's wisdom here. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly who he's looking for. There is an immediacy that we see here in Mark's recounting of these calls. And there's certainly grace here, isn't there? These calls are not extended to the clean and externally righteous and pretty religious leaders of his day. Jesus is not at the temple or the tabernacle. He's not even at the synagogue or the religious events going on in and around the great city of Jerusalem. No, he's here at the Galilean seashore. And he's looking not for the religious leaders and teachers, but for fishermen and tax collectors. Again, Mark wants us to be somewhat shocked. He wants for us to consider the nature of this eternal kingdom in the many ways that it is different from our worldly kingdoms. God's ways are not man's ways. And in order that we, must, in order that we see that this morning, we must move from the call of Christ, the King of kings, Christ the creator, to the one who receives the call to be his disciple. And so Mark puts before us the called. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, the tax collector. Now just so that we know who it is here that is being called, this is Levi, again the son of Alphaeus, whom we probably know better as Matthew. The writer of the gospel account bearing his own name, the first book of the New Testament. Excuse me. And we need to see here what he was at the time of this call. He is most certainly not a scribe or a Pharisee. He's also not a priest. In fact, it wouldn't be difficult to argue the case that he really is the antithesis of those things. The tax collectors were perhaps the most despised of all people living at the time. Despised both by their native Israel and by the Romans alike. And they were despised for good reason. These were those who had basically sold out entirely for Rome. They had agreed to work for the Romans in collecting outrageous taxes on anything and everything that the people acquired under Roman occupation. And they taxed everything, especially trade. 
which is why we find Levi here on the Galilean shore where he will tax the fishermen as they brought in their honest day's work. Making life in many ways unbearable for his own people. And Rome, though they used men like Levi, they too despised these men. These men took more than they were commissioned to take. They were known for unscrupulous greed and shrewd cunning. They were known to be those who added to the burdens of their own people in order to line their own wretched pockets. These men were sellouts and they were greedy criminals. And they had very few acquaintances and even fewer friends. The only ones who would associate with men like these were others who were just like them. Others who were sinners and tax collectors. By all accounts, beloved, these men were despicable. And as Jesus passes providentially by this tax booth, he sees exactly the man that he is looking for. The next one to take up his role in the inner circle of Jesus Christ that we know as the 12 disciples. Can you even imagine? I mean, just on the surface of this, it seems to be a very, very poor strategic move on the part of Jesus. Consider the first four that are with Jesus already. They're all what? They're fishermen. Fishermen on this very shore. And they hate this man in particular. This is the one who has exacted exorbitant taxes and fees from their very hands. And if I were building a team, the last thing I would want is to find men who are natural enemies with one another to gather around me. Again, we must consider his lack of qualifications for this new important occupation. If he knows the word of God at all, which is doubtful, it certainly has not to this point taken anything like root in his life. He continues to thrive off dishonest means. He only keeps wicked associations. Here's Jesus Christ the Son of God, looking for exactly Him. Searching Him out. Beloved, I want to ask you this morning, do you see the hope in that? Jesus is not looking for the self-proclaimed perfect ones who being unaware of their true condition really see no need for anything like transformation. I want to ask you, do you think that you are too far from the reach of God's amazing grace? Do you believe that? Then Mark is placing before you an example that proves that false. Allow for what Mark is placing before you to settle in here. Do you think that your secret sin is just too bad to get you in front of the Savior. It's too much. I want you to think again. 
This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He already knows all things. He knows the present condition of Levi's heart. He knows every single piece of the depths of this man's treachery. He knows that this very man has taken full advantage of everyone, including the people of God, and he's done it all for his own greedy gain. And Jesus sees him. And he senses his deepest need, and in a moment in time, he calls, and Levi has what drives him entirely and completely changed. He's transformed for one who lives in rebellion to the one who desires obedience more than he desires material gain. This is the call. And beloved, if King Jesus calls, you come. He's looking at the radical reach of His magnificent grace and He knows that even your wickedness Even your mistakes cannot stand in the way of His invading grace. You will be what God wills you to be. Do you believe that? If you do, then let me ask you, why do we spend so much of our time fretting about all of the other stuff in this life? Why do we spend so much time wondering about whether we've chosen the right career or the right spouse or the right place in which to live? Why do we spend so much time caught up in whether or not we've been more righteous than our neighbor? Jesus sees not righteousness in us, but our own desperate need of it. And in His wonderful mercy, He, equi- he equips us with, the per- with perfect righteousness to go and to do the work that He in His providence and His wisdom has called us to do. That is what's happening here. God is not looking at what Levi, soon to be Matthew, is, but at what he will become through the power of grace. And he says to him, it's time. Follow me. Beloved, I hope you see the wonder in that. I hope that you find yourself rejoicing this morning to know that this is what the gospel call looks like. It's no different for us. It's entirely by God's grace. And this is what the called look like. This is what we look like, the dregs. We are not those who look worthy of this calling. We are not those who have so displayed our righteousness before God and men. We are despised, sick, dead sinners who desperately need a touch from Jesus. And in His mercy, He touches us. And we're never the same. It would be easy here to sort of just skip over that effect in Levi, wouldn't it? We tend to focus on the end of the negative and not on the positive. But there's more going on here with faith in Levi than just his leaving his post as a tax collector, which he certainly does. He's going to call together, 
As a direct result of this, he's not only going to leave that post, he's going to call together all of those who are still willing to be around him. His fellow tax collectors and sinners. These really are his only associations at this point in his life. He has no friends. He has no other religious ones who may have a vested interest in who this Jesus is. And interestingly enough, you will notice that Levi is not gathering the externally sick and the infirm and the lame in order to lay them at the feet of Jesus in hopes of a miracle. That's not what he does. Because this is not a surface level conversion. Levi is not simply part of the curious crowd. This is much more than just intrigue with the apparent magic of Jesus. This is no mere external pursuit of righteousness. This is genuine, biblical, sincere, and saving faith. And it does what it must. Levi must get everyone he can in front of the Redeemer to celebrate his grace. That's what's going on. Right? He throws a party. And all of these men come and they sit together with Jesus and they have a good time over a meal. And beloved, I want you to understand this morning what this celebrating crowd is. Do you know what it is? This is the church. This is the glorious bride of Jesus Christ celebrating the grace of Almighty God over a meal. Every meal with Jesus is a banquet. And they are qualified as such in Him by faith. Jesus Himself is responsible for gathering this crowd. There is joy here. There is contentment and peace here. This scene is beautiful. Even the other disciples are by faith enjoying this conversion. They too are there. This is the church of Jesus Christ, scarred and stained from sin, sin that drives them to the only remedy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is what the fruit of the gospel looks like. This, in one sense, is what we're doing as we gather together on the Lord's Day. We are worshiping and celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place. We're celebrating the wonderful reach of His grace. We're celebrating His perfect righteousness. And we're not doing it alone. We're doing it together with one another. We are all unified entirely in Him by faith. Faith that He so graciously gives. And our focus has left one another. And become fixed upon exactly where it belongs. Upon the guest of honor. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our attention goes. That, however, is one set of Joneses, if you will. This is the genuine set. 
This is the set that by the grace of God has through the power of his spirit been made aware of their desperate need so that they can indeed celebrate the reach of the grace of his grace that has delivered them from the curse. These are those in the church that are in fact the joyful, celebrating redeemed. But of course there's another group here. And these are not at all joyful about what is taking place. Mark tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees see this lot of evil revelers sitting and enjoying the company of Jesus, and they are indignant. They approach his disciples and they say, what in the world is going on here? Why is this supposed rabbi of all rabbis not even able in his supposed wisdom to discern the character of the people whom he sits to eat with? Why, we never. And of course, Jesus hears their indirect, and I would say cowardly criticism. They could have had the courage to criticize or to question Jesus himself, but they didn't dare. Instead, they tried to intimidate his disciples. And so Jesus hears it, and he addresses them immediately with those memorable words. I've come to save the sick. The well have no need of a physician. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the chasm between necessary and perfect righteousness and self-righteousness begins to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. We begin to see the formation of what I would call another set of Joneses. I want to leave you with one final observation about that second group for you to think about in the coming weeks as we continue to unpack the rest of these five examples of this growing conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. You see, the whole point of that song I told you about earlier in the sermon was essentially, in the church, we have these two sets of people. Those who are concerned about the things of God and those who are concerned about the things of this world. Now perhaps you're thinking, that's, that's a leap, Steve. That doesn't really fit the narrative. The Pharisees were a lot of things. But certainly they were concerned with the things of God. They may have been self-righteous. However, their self-righteousness was born out of a real desire to please God through their stringent regiments of discipline. These were, in one sense, the most righteous, most disciplined men of their day. Well, beloved, if you believe that, then please hear me when I tell you that you may be well on your way to being one of those men, if you are not one already. If you think that God has called you to be disgusted with those around you in the church of Jesus Christ that just do not get it to the extent that you get it, then I want to be crystal clear with you. You are worldly at best. It's the height of worldliness. Do you know why I would say that? 
to be concerned about the worthiness of others, to be caught up in getting everyone to be like you, to look like you, to smell like you, to sound like you, is entirely a worldly pursuit. Self-righteousness has everything to do with the here and now and absolutely nothing to do with eternity. Nothing. We fooled ourselves into believing it's more admirable than it is. And there's none of that going on here in this collection of sinners enjoying every single minute that they get to spend with their Savior. They are the redeemed. They have something to be grateful for. They are the spiritual ones by God's grace. This motley crew of formerly wicked people. They have no desire over their fellow sinners' worthiness to speak or to be in the presence of Jesus. In fact, their focus is entirely outside of themselves as they sit at the feet of Jesus and actually get to break bread with their Savior. But the externally religious, well, they have standards. They've done more than these. They've sacrificed more. They have reputations to protect. They have occupations to protect. They have buildings and legacies to protect. They do not need riffraff coming in and bringing down the real estate value. Beloved, I hope I've been clear throughout my entire ministry here, but I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. Self-righteousness is a disgusting representation of God's amazing grace. It's disgusting. It is ugly worldliness masquerading as holy piety, plain and simple. And beloved, if that offends you this morning then praise God because now you can give it the consideration that it deserves because only one set of Joneses belongs to God by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two sets. Which one are you? Let's pray.